Well, amen. God bless you. Thank you, choir. I, um, boy, they just, they were carrying me along, and all of a sudden, boom. Oh, like I, I heard a guy speaking at a youth conference one time. The kids were just having an incredible time and, and uh, talking to one another. They'd been singing some songs and, and, um, <clears throat> and um, just, just were in a great spirit and enjoying one another. And this guy, this youth evangelist, got up and says, All right, kids, it's time to stop having fun. We're going to talk about Jesus. I thought, what a lead-in, <laughs> what a lead-in. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of John, chapter 12. I'm going to read, because I just want to read this much of the passage, verses 20 through 33. My sermon this morning will concentrate on the text of verses 20 through 26, but uh, probably more so than any, verse 23 of the passage, but I want to read all of, of verses 20 through 33, so we look at that together. God bless you. I have um, dear brothers talking about looking about and seeing how many people he loves, and um, I tell you that um, I dearly love you. Some someone might say, but you don't know us, uh, but um, you have loved us so much, and uh, I tell people wherever I go uh, that what means so much um, is uh, your appreciation for and receptivity of the Word of God, and I really do appreciate that. And I and I like I say I love the way you love to sing and praise the Lord. Uh, but we have felt so loved, and we thank God for being here. Of course, I just thank God for the wonderful opportunity to preach. Uh, but I tell you, uh, preaching is not, all, is not in no way just a one-way channel. Uh, preaching has to do, it, it, is a, it is a matter of worship. It's part of worship. And, and I need you. Uh, for me to preach, I need some hearers and people that want to hear from the Lord. And if I think at all, God has called me to speak on His behalf, to explain the Word of God, then God must provide for me hearers and people that love the Word and want to be hearers and doers of the Word. And God bless you. I, I don't, that's not in my notes this morning. I tell you what, uh, but I do love you and I thank you. I prayed so hard for you uh, this past week. I hope you pray for me. Stand with me as we look at the Word of God together. You surely have time to find it with all that side stuff the preacher had to talk about. But verse 20 of John chapter 12, and I'm going to read through, uh, on through to verse, uh, to verse 33 this morning. Verse 20, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. What, that is a wonderful little phrase in Scripture. Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come. You want to key in on that phrase this morning? That really is the message. Uh, <clears throat> the hour is come. 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. Very, verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I do? Father, save me from this hour? It's almost a question. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me or for me, but for your sakes. Now is judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Let's pray a moment. Father, the riches of your word just sweep over us. Um, I uh, admit to you that the Holy Spirit brings a message to me every time when I just read the word aloud and publicly in a, in a congregational worship service. Uh, the Word has such power and uh, magnificence, and I thank you. Thank you for this uh, group gathered this morning. Uh, it meant something for them to drive through the trial of this rain today. Uh, it means something for them to come and say, I still have, I'm still invested in this place, and I love this place. Uh, it, it means something that they believe it is on the Lord's day that we meet with the Lord in the house that belongs to the Lord's people. And I appreciate them for that. Now, guide us in these moments. Uh, open the word up once again to my heart as I uh, take a journey with the people through this passage. Um, I want Jesus to be so magnified, glorified, and lifted up. And I want us all to be a part about lifting Him up. Of course, He was lifted up on the cross. Now, today, we lift him up with our witness and our praises. We trust you in this hour. Bring us closer to Jesus. We would see Jesus. That is our prayer in his wonderful name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> in June of 1940, just... Um, almost 80 years ago, the Nazis had swept across Western Europe. Already in June of 40, the countries of Holland, Belgium, Poland, and just days earlier, 
France had fallen and surrendered to Adolf Hitler. Next in the Nazi sights was England, was the islands of Great Britain. On June 18, 1940, Winston Churchill went before the House of Commons to inform them that the hour of war with Germany was upon them. Can I this morning read you a quote from the last paragraph of that speech? Now, you're not going to tell me no, are you? It goes this way. The battle of France is over. I expect the battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Wasn't that an amazing statement? You won't hear that out of the mouth of many leaders in Western Europe today, will you? Or even the United States today. Whatever. Forgive me, I should not stop there. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or he will lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlight, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that have known and cared for, will seek into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was our finest hour. And he ended, aren't you glad they did prevail? Aren't you glad the allies prevailed? Boy, I didn't, did you, did, y'all didn't go to sleep on me, did you? I'm so glad we prevailed even with the Blitzkrieg, that almost destroyed the city of London. They prevailed. The Allies prevailed. It was Britain's finest hour. Some suggest that this speech was Churchill's finest hour. But that's not my sermon. My sermon is about Jesus' finest hour. His finest hour. Jesus uses that phrase, my hour. He uses a similar idiom that Hitler used 
excuse me, Churchill used when he said, this would be Britain's finest hour. Now you know, and I know, that when Churchill used that phrase, and when Jesus used it three times in the passage I read this morning, he wasn't talking about 60 minutes, an hour, a literal hour. He was talking about a time, an occasion, an arrival, a turning point, a point in life when everything you are, everything you have done, and everything you believe brings you to your destiny. It brings you to life's highest purposes and accomplishments. And that's what Jesus meant when he talked about his hour. In the book of John, this phrase, my hour, Jesus using my hour, the hour, is used at least seven different times. The first time it was used is when Mary spoke to Jesus on the, uh, the, the, in the wedding at Cana when they said they were out of wine. And he said, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. What, was he just being mean to his mama? No, Jesus was not. He's saying, you need to understand, I have to watch everything I do because I don't want to push people too soon to try to take control of me and take my life. Because there was an hour to come when he would give his life. But Jesus, in this passage, and in that passage, in other places, when he talks about his hour, he is speaking of his finest hour. And, he, and, and when Jesus said in verse 23, the hour is come. The hour is come. Do you know when he spoke it right there? It's here now. He told his mother it's not time for it. On other occasions, he said, he said it wasn't time for it. But now he says, my hour has come. My finest hour is now. Do you know when he said it? He said it at the very beginning of what we call the Passion Week. It was either on Sunday of the... Uh, when we talk about Palm Sunday or Monday, but right at the beginning, we, don't, we can't tell exactly from the text, but ve- at the very beginning of the week, he said, the hour's here. I have finally arrived to my finest hour. He said this at the beginning of the last week of his earthly life. Eight days, Sunday to Sunday, that has become known as the Passion Week, Jesus considered his finest hour to be that one week, that one week, those last eight days that he was here on this earth before his resurrection. Jesus clearly stated on numerous occasions that his hour had not come. Now it had come. And what was he talking about? He was talking about It is now, he said it over and over again, he is talking about the time he would die. He said, the time I die will be my finest hour. This hour, my finest hour, is when I die. You know, that has to strike you with a certain curiosity and a a reason to think. Think about all the times Jesus could have said, this is my finest hour. What about in his baptism 
And he, when, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, when God thundered out of the skies and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he could have raised his hand and said, this is my finest hour. What about it, the temptation of Satan in the wilderness? Uh, and Jesus beat him over and over and over again. And Satan had to flee from him, and the angels came and surrounded Jesus and served him. Don't you think he was able to say, this is my finest hour? What about his preaching, like on the Sermon on the Mount? What about his miracles? What about when he fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch? What about when he called Lazarus to come out of the grave? Why could he say, this is my finest hour? But no, not with any of those. All these things were just preparation for this time. This is his hour. This is his passion. Until now, Jesus avoided every situation that might hasten his death. But he said, now I'm in control. I will go to the cross. And it's my finest hour. You know, Jesus actually lived all his life for that last week. You know, many of us, probably most of us, will think about all the living we did long before we get to that last week, won't we? Because often we spend that in a hospital or a nursing home or our family is around us attending us. But Jesus said, all of my life, I lived looking forward to this day. I lived for these days. You do know this, don't you? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did you know that both Mark and John give almost half of their Gospels to the last week of Jesus' life? Matthew and Luke give over a third to just the last week. Everything up to this point, Jesus lived for this. For 33 years, he lived for this day. Do you, have, you, have you ever used the phrase, I live for the day when? I live for the day when? I can look around this congregation and I know that somebody in here has said, I live for the day I can retire. And I'm not just looking at older people. I can look at some of you, you just saying, I live for the day when I can quit this job. I can look over here and said, I live for the day when I have my own car. Somebody say amen. <laughs> or I live for the day when I can finally get out of this house and run my own life. I'm not talking to the young people. I'm talking to some parents. I live for the day. But watch what Jesus said. His father, I live for the day when I die. I live for the day that I die. He lived for what it meant to him, what it meant to the Father, and what it means to us. Um including today, eight, eight Sundays to Easter Sunday. Um, what I've chosen to do while I'm beginning this, this hour, my hour's come, 
I'm going to look at the Passion Week over the next few weeks leading up to Easter. Of course, I, and I'm going to look at each day as, as I can. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we'll stick in the Palm Sunday somewhere. We'll stick in Good Friday somewhere. We'll end on Easter Sunday. And I'll pick some of the other days. And, and look at how Jesus lived in those days in that last week that was so critical to his ministry and his purpose in being here. But today, I want to just talk to you about Jesus' hour had come. I want to talk to you about his finest hour. Um, three different little things I see in here is Jesus talks about his hour. And how, what, they, what stood out to me in preparation of these weeks to come as we lead up to that third week in April where we have an Easter Sunday service. Of course, I realize I may not be here. Michael preach it, I guess, if I'm not here. But, uh, but if the Lord lingers and the Lord allows and you keep me here that long, I'll preach through Easter Sunday. Uh, <clears throat> but we, I want us to look today, as Jesus talked about, my finest hour is the week, the Passion Week, the day that I died. There are three things I notice about this Jesus' finest hour. It was so much the hour for his praises. In verse 23, it says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, we, often when we hear the word glorified, we think about the, the end. That, that's the end of our salvation. That's seeing Jesus after his resurrection, seeing him in his resurrected body, and us seeing us in our resurrected body, being in heaven and we're all glorified. Jesus said, listen, I, I will be glorified. I am convinced what he's saying. He's come to a place in this last week where more and more and more he's going to get the praises of people. He's going to be glorified. He's going to be set apart. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be praised. His person will be magnified. By people, by faith, will, will look at Jesus and say, there's something so exalted and amazing. Do you not remember so many of the stories that happened that week? How they praised him? Jesus said, the hour has come. This is my hour. And during this time, he accepted encouraged praise like no other time. You know, on the road, as he entered into Jerusalem, the crowd laid palm branches in the street, and they cried out, Hosanna. They, they were giving him this incredible praise. And the children cried out. And Jesus quoted the Old Testament, says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings will praise be come for me. And he encouraged it. He rebuked those that rebuked those who were praising. He said, I deserve this praise. Do you not see something in this? Folks, listen to me. For Jesus encouraging and accepting praise was one of the sure signs that he believed he was God. Do you not understand that? Now, there are a lot of great folks in here. There's a lot of good-looking folks in here. Some of you know you're good-looking, or at least think you're good-looking. Uh, someone may compliment your dress or your tie or your new hairdo this morning. 
And you'll either accept it or you'll kind of humble down and say, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm, not so, I'm not so good. But all the while thinking, you know, I really do look good this morning. <laughs> but I tell you, you know, through my experiences in life, it seems like most people I've known, all the people I've known, they've got a limit. They're not going to say, let you say, you know, you're absolutely a God. You're absolutely God. You're the greatest that ever was. You, 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 you'll back up from that in a moment, won't you? Get real, man. Don't, don't come at me with that. But Jesus was not that way. He said, let them praise me. As a matter of fact, on Palm Sunday, you remember what he said? When they argued and complained about the, the cries of Hosanna, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord and all this, Jesus looked at those critics and he said, I tell you, if they don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. I deserve it. Do you see that? This was what was so much a part of his passion week. It was the hour for his praises. This passage begins with some Greeks coming from the West and they're looking for Jesus. They obviously are some kind of proselyte, someone, some, someone that heard about Jesus and wanted to follow him, wanted to learn about him and whatnot. And they come in and they're, they're wanting to know about Jesus. They're wanting to praise Jesus. They're, they're wanting to be engaged with his people. When I think about these three Greeks that came. It reminds me of three kings that came from the east in the beginning. You remember that? And they came and they said, we want to find him so we can do what? Worship him. That's right. You remember, don't you? They came and searched for him. We want to find Jesus. We want to worship him. Before I leave this, about this being the hour of his praises, I want you to know in this Passion Week, this, remember now, and we're going to that next, this was the week of his greatest suffering, right? He says, in this week of my greatest suffering, I will have my greatest praise. Folks, there is a spiritual principle that suffering should never decrease our praises. And I'm talking about our praises for God. Our suffering should only increase our praises. In this week, Jesus said, more and more praise. And not only that, Jesus kind of in a measure here with these Greeks showing up said, listen, my praises will reach around, around the world. It was Paul who said that one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My praises will reach around this world. I, I cannot forget the story that on the day that Jesus died, when, when his suffering was complete, I mean at the moment of his death, when he cried out to give forgiveness to the people, and he breathed his last, and he said it is finished, there was an old centurion Roman guard at the foot of the cross. And do you remember what that centurion said? He said, surely this man was the Son of God. Praise is what he will have in the midst, in the hour of his greatest suffering, in the hour of his greatest triumph. It was not only the hour of his praises, it was the hour for his passion. 
Verse, in this passage, verse 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Later on he said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. This was the week of Jesus' passion, of his sufferings, his cross, and his death. You know, before the gospel goes out and the world comes to Jesus, he had to go to the cross. He had to go to the cross. Jesus clearly means to tell the people that he is the grain of wheat, that he speaks of his sufferings, his cross, and his death, that that grain of wheat will go into the ground and will die. And this is my greatest hour, the hour of my death. You know, do you ever wonder where we get the word passion for Passion Week? You know, I, I don't know how long I was a preacher and um, how long I w went to church before I really got a grip on that. I always thought to myself, what does passion have to do with the cross and suffering and, and you know, and all of those things? Um, I, honest, I use passion in a whole lot different way, but it, it came down through the centuries really from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. There it talks about the sufferings that Jesus experienced in that week were sufferings of passion. We don't use that word so often of suffering and hurting anymore. We use the word passion today. How? When we're passionate for something, we're involved, we're given to something. We're, we're part of it. We feel this, this thing. We're part of this thing. We're passionate for it. Uh, you could be passionate for a poor person. Uh, many of you in here are passionate for your ball team. Amen? Uh, you wear their colors and whatnot. Probably, don't raise your hand, please. I know they beat Kentucky yesterday, but uh, <clears throat> many of you are passionate for, for Tennessee. Uh, and you still wear your big orange colors, don't you? And the third Saturday in October, you're at your TV. Or if lucky enough, you've got a ticket wherever they're playing. Amen? And you'll wear your orange. You're passionate for your team. Did you know the last time UT beat Alabama, nobody had even heard of an iPhone? <laughs> that's the truth. Say, that's not funny, huh? Not only that, they lost to Vanderbilt four years in a row. But you'll go out, you know they're going to beat them next year. Does that make you stop wearing your orange? Does that make you start cheering for them, wearing your UT caps? No, you know why? Because you, you either grew up with it, you've, it's been ingrained, it's a part of you. See, won't you, now... Shift gears with me. Get off of the UT stuff, all right? Shift gears with me. Jesus' passion, when he went to the cross, he so fully identified with us. He became a part of us. See, when he died, he felt for us. 
He became a part of us. He understood our sins. He took the weight of it. He felt the wrath of God that you and I deserve if we go out of this world without Christ. He, it was passion. Passion. He identified with it. It wasn't just pain. It wasn't just a difficult time. It wasn't just bloodshed. But what happened on the cross, Jesus experienced it. He felt it. He felt the consequences of our sin and, like I said, the wrath of God. He felt everything you and I should experience if we never trust Him. It was His passion. And watch this. This was His hour. This is my hour. This is my finest hour. This is my greatest glory. You know, this is even more the reason why I know that Jesus, everything up to this time, he lived for these days because only his death would bear much fruit. Did you get that with the, 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 the seed going in the ground and dying? Only then will it bear fruit. You know, if you've got a seed in your hand, it's never going to do anything until it's buried, right? Until it goes into the ground and dies. Jesus said, only by my death. Only his death would bear much fruit. Only his death can save us. Listen to me, folks. Take it in, understand it. Believing in miracles or seeing a miracle or even having your own miracle won't save you. Don't believe those turkeys on TV. I'm telling you, a miracle won't save you. Only the death of Jesus Christ will save you. I'm not saying I don't believe me. I, I probably got some of you confused. I believe in the miracles of the Bible. I believe in the miracle, miracle power working of Jesus Christ. I believe God can work miracles today. I believe he can do what he wants to anytime he wants to, the way he wants to. You understand me? I don't, I don't have any notion of restricting the miracle power working of God even in this hour. I believe in it. So don't let me confuse you. But I'm telling you, a miracle won't save you. A miracle won't change your life. Not your soul. Hearing and believing the teachings of Jesus will not save you. Adoring his life and deciding, I'm going to follow him. I'm, I'm going to have his same kind of kindness and benevolence. I tell you, if you think that following Jesus, just following him and believing what he said will save you, it won't save you, it will only frustrate you because you'll never arrive to the place that Jesus was in and where he is. Do you understand me? None of those things, none, nothing about Jesus in that way will save you. The only thing that will save us is his death. He lived for the day he would die. He became both our priest and our sacrifice. Why is this important? Listen to me, everyone. Only when you identify with Jesus in his death, realize what your sin caused him to experience, that he went through the passion for you. Only till you understand that will he bear any fruit in your life and save you. Now I've got a last point. It's not only the hour of his passion, the hour of praises. He said, this is my hour. I just, the Lord's so precious. And the end here brings his people in. He says, this is the hour for my people. For my people. Verse 25 and 26. He said, he that loveth this life shall lose it. 
And he that hateth his life in this world will keep it unto a life eternal. 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Jesus now turns his teaching from himself to those who turn to him in faith. Um, he says, any man. That reminds me of Paul's whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Anybody. He parallels the image of his passion. Remember the seed falling into the ground and dying? He said, if you understand that you must die to your old life and turn to me, then something will happen in your life. He parallels this image of his passion to faith and commitment on behalf of his own people. Those who by faith follow him. He first of all talks about saving faith in verse 25. He said, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. He talks about saving faith. You know, saving faith is a dying to the old life. Lose it. Hate it. It's the whole nature of of repentance. To die to everything that you valued without God. Does that make sense to you? That's what, when you turn to Christ, you say, I died everything that meant great things to me without God. I died to my disobedience to God. I exchanged my old life for a new life, a spiritual life. And hear me, friends, you will never ever say yes to God till you say no to yourself and your sin. You won't. I would have to ask, what does your yes to Jesus mean if you've never said no to yourself? But it's not only saving faith. He talks about serving faith. In this last week, this week of his passion, this, his finest hour, he, looks, he thinks about his people and he says, if any man... Serve me. Let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Amen. You know, it's, it's after we die to self that the fruits of righteousness begin to grow in our lives. God begins to give us opportunity. He begins to give us ability to serve him after we die to ourselves. Then we follow him. Then we have fellowship with him. And one day we will be honored by the Father. Let me say something to you this morning, Hillcrest Baptist Church. If you are a born-again believer, your finest hour to date is when you bent your knee in repentance and trusted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. And still there are finer hours to come when the Father will honor you. You know, this whole theme of uh, the seed being planted and dying and then producing fruit, Jesus applied to himself and his death burial and resurrection. And he said, 
And you Christians, you that follow me in faith, it's the same principle. Dying to self, putting away that old life, and then becoming fruitful and significant in life for yourself and for me. I read a story this last week about a missionary. I have two children that are missionaries, and I enjoy reading stories. A story about a team that um, headed out to the, really the far bush, out in the bush in Africa, <clears throat> to do a, a team here in America went to be with a missionary team in Africa out in the bush. Uh, the volunteer team went out there and spent several weeks. After the first week, most of them really began to, missing the conveniences of home. Uh, they never knew what it was going to be like out there. Uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the volunteers one day said to the missionaries, to one of the missionaries, they said, you guys sure have buried yourself deep out here in the woods. He must have been from Tennessee. Just deep out here in the woods. And the missionary said, we're not buried. We've been planted. Those of you that say you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, I'm telling you, there may be times in your life when you th believe you're way out in the woods. You may think, uh, the world may think, you're buried under all this mess. You're in so much trouble. You're so far gone. Nothing good could happen. But I want to encourage you in something. I want to encourage you primarily from the lips of Jesus. You're not buried. Even in your darkest hours and your most difficult circumstances, you're not buried. You're planted. God planted you there. He planted you in your home, in your school, in your work, in your community. And folks, we got to keep believing that God planted you in this church. You're planted here. He planted me here. And I have to die to myself and believe that He, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can bring fruits of righteousness to my life. He can bring fruits of victory to my life. If I believe and so put my trust in the fact that He planted me here. Jesus said, because of my passion, because of my death, because of this my greatest hour, my finest hour, my people will have both saving faith and serving faith. I'm going to conclude with this. <clears throat> Jesus said, um, when he talked about that seed, he said in verse 24, it says, um, Verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You know what was Jesus saying? He was saying, if I don't go to the cross, if I don't die, if I don't purchase redemption for a lost world, if I, it'll be like a seed that no matter how good a seed, beautiful a seed, 
whatever else that, uh, that never gets planted. I, it abideth alone. Jesus was saying, if I don't go to the cross, I've left everybody alone. The disciples are now alone. This world is alone. Everybody will die in their sins. Everybody will go out in eternity hopeless if I don't go to the cross and die. I, I, I'm just here alone for myself. For myself. And I want to say something to everyone here this morning. If you don't come to the cross, if you don't come to the only hope you have in this world, that is in Jesus Christ and His death and His cross, I can describe you. I can describe you right now. See, I remember the days before I was a believer, before I was saved, and Jesus became a part of my life. I can describe you today. You are alone. There's nothing planted about your life if you've not died to yourself and given your life to Jesus Christ. I tell you, I can describe you. You are alone. There, there's no God in your life, no peace in your life. You're alone. You're in your temptations. See, you still suffer temptations. There are temptations that come from the world and come from the devil. You say, what if, if I'm not a believer, what do you talk about temptations? Temptations, don't give me that. Everybody has a certain set of values and th do's and don'ts and whatnot. And there are things you want to quit. There are things you want to do better. But you can't overcome them. You can't deal with it. You know why? You're alone in your temptations. You're alone in your life changing and being better. You're alone in your sins and your failures. I tell you, you're alone in the night. When you lay in your bed and you think about eternity. And think about... Will I wake in the morning? Will I live through another day? You're even alone in crowds. The heartache of it all is, without Jesus, you'll also be alone in hell. I don't, you figured this one out yet? That hell's a lake of fire, but it's also a place of darkness? God's got it figured out. Torment and loneliness where your sin and unbelief eats away at you for eternity. Alone. 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 I got a better option. Die to yourself and be raised with fruits of righteousness. Jesus in your life. This was his finest hour. Today could be your finest hour. Trust Jesus.